Welcome to Let's Chat About CHD, uh, Postpartum Edition. The audio you are about to hear is based on our own opinions and not the opinions of us as medical professionals or of our medical teams. Auditory discretion is advised. Mental health and other sensitive matters will be talked about. If you feel that you may have postpartum depression or anxiety or any other postpartum mood disorder, please reach out to your care provider or local helpline. My name is Katie, and I have two children. Um, I had postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety with my first. Hi, everyone. I'm Courtney. I have three children. I've had varying postpartum moods with each of my kids. Um, So I guess I will start with... um, just a little bit about my case. Um, when my daughter was born, um, it was a very difficult time in my life and in my relationship. And, um, you know, there was a lot of things being a brand new mom and being on the younger side when I had her. Um, I also, you know, was very scared of having a little girl and was experiencing some uh, very strong danger disappointment. Um, so when I had her, um, you know, my mental health was bad already and I was just very confused and overwhelmed and just felt very, very uncomfortable with my situation. Um, you know, I didn't want to hold her when she was born. I was not happy. I was not excited like everybody was talking about. Um, but you know, I was still very much filled with love and, um, you know, it was still very, very exciting that she was when she was born, um, but it just took so much longer for me to connect and bond, and um, it took me a very, very long time to realize kind of what was going on. I think she was eight months old when we started doing behavior therapy with her, and we realized that a lot of it was linked to just the lack of connection due to my own mental disconnect from like my whole entire environment. So with my first, I was a young mom too. I was 18 when I had Crystal and I had given up pretty much everything. I gave up my job. I gave up, um, college and I gave up so many scholarships that it was very disappointing. I had the gender disappointment as well with Chrissy. You know, I wanted a little baby boy and instead I got a sassy little girl. And, um, so just all of that combined. And then I was straight, like I had just finished high school in May. I had my daughter in November. My boyfriend and I at the time went from seeing each other from every day at school for a couple of hours here and there to now we were seeing each other every day with the newborn at our parents' house 
and it was just stressful. And that stress put me into postpartum depression. And um, I mean, I still took care of my child, don't get me wrong. But I let myself go. I don't think I really washed my hair, took showers. I was taking college classes at the time and ended up completely failing an entire semester and uh, had to drop out of the program. So it was just, it's a lot that goes on. And it's not just one thing that causes postpartum depression. It's a combination of everything. Yeah, and you don't need to have, um, like, pre-existing mental health or anything like that to have it. Um, I mean, obviously, those kinds of things aggravate, um, you know, your postpartum mood. Um, but it, it's totally not necessary. There's lots of extremely mentally healthy people who, you know, before babies were taking care of themselves and always on top of their mental health and doing fantastic and, you know, um, having a baby does lots of crazy things to your hormones and some people just get hit by a ton of bricks once they have a baby with all these strange things happening to their bodies and um, and they just fall into this weird loop of like in their brain paths that they're not used to and that they can't help on their own. Oh, absolutely. And then I think a common misconception with postpartum depression too and postpartum anxiety is that it only happens within the first couple of months. And that's not true. You can have postpartum depression up until a year after your child is born. Yep. And if it's not dealt with, it can go on. It can manifest into other things and go on for a lot longer than that. Right. So then you had your second, Katie, and you had Elliot. So you didn't experience any postpartum mood swings? Um, No. So it was really strange. Like, I thought um, if any child was going to throw me under the bus mental health-wise, it was going to be him. But I think, you know, I spent so much time preparing uh, in my pregnancy for this, like, terrible, catastrophic um, scenario that you know I was just already so prepared for the worst that I just kind of enjoyed every single moment and um, you know I was in a very different place starting out my pregnancy with him so it was just um, just like a completely different situation Um, and um, I mean I'm finding now that um, you know as he's getting older and and things are becoming less um less like in that tragedy mindset and you know he's doing better than I then I'm finding my mood is kind of going up and down but um definitely nothing even anywhere close to where I was with Blair okay that and that you know that makes sense because with Annabelle you know I had horrible postpartum depression with her. I had horrible postpartum anxiety. And, you know, I even bordered lined on postpartum psychosis, which is very scary in itself. And if you do think you're experiencing postpartum psychosis, I strongly suggest calling your doctor, checking yourself into the local hospital before you hurt yourself or your child. And, um, 
But with Annabelle, I had postpartum depression. I would come home from the NICU and I would just cry. And there was nothing anybody could do. There was nothing anybody could say that would change how I was feeling. And that lasted for a while. And then I had postpartum anxiety on top of it. So I would put Annabelle in the car seat and I would take her car seat out to the car and I would be the one to put her car seat in the car. And then I would get in the car and I would still look in the back of the car seat to make sure that I had Annabelle with me. And, you know, I did all of this and we would be driving down the road and five minutes later, 10 minutes later, I would be asking myself or my significant other if we had Annabelle. And it was just a vicious cycle that I didn't even want to leave my house because the postpartum anxiety consumed so much of my mental state that it was just horrible. So then, you know, on top of that, then I had the postpartum depression with Annabelle. So she would cry and cry. And my thought, my first thoughts were, okay, Annabelle is crying. We can just let her sit on the floor, let her lay on the floor and she'll be okay crying for a little bit. And I don't have to get up right this minute. And, um, and that's what I did a lot of times is I would let her cry first before I went and got the bottle before I went and picked her up before, you know, doing anything with her. And thankfully we did, we did bond, but it was stressful. I don't, I think it was when she was three months old, I finally realized that I needed help and I couldn't keep going through the vicious cycle of car rides and coming home and crying and everything else. So I got help from my doctor and I talking to him, I literally sat in the office and I was crying. And so he prescribed, prescribed me Celexa and he said to call him back if it got, if my mood got worse and everything like that. And it did. And when I was on the Celexa, that's when my postpartum depression and anxiety changed to postpartum psychosis. And, uh, one of the biggest things with that was I would be driving down the road and, you know, and the thoughts th swirling through my head were, okay, I'm in my car and there's a median there and I can create an accident and shut down the, the entire road and maybe harm myself in the process. And being a mom, you can't, I couldn't do that, but that's what, went through my head. And then there were, there was another time that thankfully I wasn't at, I wasn't at home by myself, but I was inside and it was a gorgeous summer day and, um, the windows were open and everything, but Annabelle just kept crying. And my first thought when she started crying was, okay, the baby is crying. Let's throw her out of the window. And, um, that's when I realized that what I was feeling and stuff wasn't great. And I stopped taking my medicine, my Celexa. And um, 
I called my doctor back the, ne- the that same day and I made an appointment to get on something else. And then once I got my medicines changed, then my mood definitely drastically stable stabilized. I'm trying to think. Celexa is Citalopram, not? I believe so. I think it's like yeah, I'm trying to remember um, because I believe on it, I was on it as well, and there's some nasty side effects. Um, and I found actually um, just you talking about driving, like for some reason, just like put all of this my, um, pieces together in my head. Um, I used to like black out while I was driving and like would get stuck in the intersection, and my husband would just be like yelling at me, like the light is turning red, you have to go. Um, yeah, not. Meds, meds are not a one size fit all. Thing. Oh, absolutely not at all. And um, now, I mean, there it now they have this blood test that if you are uncomfortable changing your medications and doing a trial and error, you can get a blood test drawn, and it will tell you what medication will work best for your genetics. And I think yeah. that's an amazing um. It's just an amazing test that can save so many people. Well, yeah, especially if you don't, like, you're not self-aware. Um, because if either of us wasn't self-aware in a lot of our situations, you know, it would have ended in much different circumstances than it did. Um, you know, because when you don't realize that things are happening that shouldn't like if I didn't realize that I was spacing out while driving or I didn't realize that I wasn't bonding with my child and needed to fix that um you know it could have ended differently for you if you didn't realize that the med was reacting with your mood in a negative way and that is very common with lots of different medications is again if it's not the right fit it can make it worse instead of making it better um you know if you don't notice that you will just continue to spiral downwards and if nobody else picks up on it um then where are you gonna end up at the bottom like absolutely and um i'm just i'm thankful that i was self-aware enough to walk out of my house that day but it's still one of those things that's fresh in my mind, even though it happened two years ago. Like I keep going back to that. And what if I wouldn't have been self-aware, you know, what if I had thrown her out of the window and it just, it eats away at me. There's a lot of guilt. There's definitely a lot of guilt once you recover or even if you are recovering and have become more self-aware, like, um, people talk about um, like behavior and stuff all the time and um, one of the biggest things I remember is delivery of that information of you know like some of your lack of emotional control or some of the lack of the um, emotional control in the environment is why your child has reduced emotional social skills um you know how you say that especially to a mother um who is dealing with mental health issues um is very very important because two people said the exact same thing to me but very different ways one got screamed at and one 
was the one who got the information to me, made me realize and made me change the situation. Things are still not great. Like Blair has ADHD and she is still way behind on her emotional social skills. Um, and I'm, I refuse to take <laughs> full responsibility. Some of it is just her like ADHD. Postpartum depression does not cause ADHD. Let me just clarify that. But she has ADHD and then on top of everything else, it's put her further behind. Um, and, you know, yes, there's, there's lots of guilt that um, comes with that. You sit, sit there and think, well, may, you know, maybe if I had realized sooner or maybe if I'd done this and maybe if I'd done that, you know, she wouldn't be doing this or she wouldn't be doing that or she wouldn't be where she is. Um, despite the fact that she is a fantastic, amazing, intelligent, beautiful young lady, there's still things that are like, well, what if I did this or I should have done this and I should have done that. Oh, absolutely. And that even goes through for my three kids, you know, with Chrissy, I did my own, I worked through the postpartum depression and, you know, tried going to different counselors and um, just kind of did my own thing and got myself and I last, I don't know, I don't even know how long it took me to get out of my whole postpartum depression with her to you know, where I could actually feel like I functioned again. But I think it was like a year by myself. And then with Annie, I had went three months and my mom finally one day is like, you need to go get, go to the doctor. And uh, my mom was actually the one who pushed me to go to the doctor when I had Annabelle to get something. And then, um, I found out when Annabelle was 10 months old that I was pregnant with Jacob. So Annabelle has her Edson's anomaly and SVT and, you know, it, that's her CHD. So with that, it's already a Jacob's pregnancy became more of a high risk and more of a, okay, well, what did I do with Annabelle that made her, have a CHD and you know the answer is nothing there was nothing that I did that actually caused her CHD you know they think in some of the early early studies that lithium causes Epstein's but the longer we go with you know these studies the further it's disproven and everything so there was not literally nothing that I did but to make it to make myself that more at ease I stopped taking my medication. I cold turkey to find fluoxetine. And uh, I went an entire, another nine months without taking it. And then with Jacob, then I had Jacob and of course we had COVID. So I had all of those other emo mixed emotions and um, just for lack of better word disappointment with no gender reveal no baby shower no visitors no you know we didn't have any of that so that played a part in my postpartum depression too but then my history with postpartum depression it wasn't a surprise that I had postpartum depression with Jacob but my postpartum depression with him was more of a complete mood disorder and I was angry all the time and um so I 
finally decided that I needed to be put back on my medication after for for about four months, I finally realized it clicked again that I needed to be back on my medication. So I had to make another appointment with my doctor to get back on the fluoxetine. And um, Jacob's now eight months old. And I'm back on my fluoxetine. I'm working on getting my sleep fixed. So hopefully my whole mental state is 10 times better once I get my sleep fixed too. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you brought up some really good points. Um, talking about therapy, like there is not enough therapy options for people with children, let alone people working with children, but even like here where we, you know, we have mat leaves and stuff. Um, I remember post Blair, like trying to continue my therapy and them being like, well, you can't, you can't bring your child to your anxiety and depression group. And I'm like, well, I don't have anybody to watch her. Like, what do you want me to do with her? Like, Oh, ab- Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Leave her at home. <laughs> oh, ab- I absolutely agree with that. And then you pair, um, you know, there's so many therapists. So you see one, I think I seen one, two, three, I think I seen about four or five therapists before I before I stuck with one and I've been seeing the same therapist now for almost a year and uh I go every three weeks but the nice thing about COVID is it's pushed a lot of my appointments to over the phone so I can stay at home and have phone appointments and still get the care that I need and I think that's the only, and yeah. I think that's one of the only good things that COVID has has done is push um, healthcare to be more accessible with virtual appointments and over the phone appointments and you know stuff like that. Yeah, totally, totally hope that that stays um, because it, it definitely has helped. But um, it, like totally the same thing. Um, and therapy here is ridiculously expensive. Some strangers. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't even, I honestly could not even tell you um, how many people I've been through. Um, and then obviously we're limited to our insurance and our insurance only covers like very small amounts. Um, but yeah, and it's, um, it's insane. And I stopped my meds too with both of my pregnancies. Um, with Blair, I stopped because I was told that I should not take the meds that I was on and I honestly think it was the Celexa um well I was pregnant with her anyway um and then with Elliot I just stopped because I felt like it but then I ended up taking uh Zofran a couple of times at the hospital per IV and then you know you you get exactly what you're talking about the, the whole lithium thing where people are like throwing information at you um, you know, I, I was told in, in several groups that um, despite the fact that I did quite a large amount of research on the Zofran before they gave it to me at the hospital, that, you know, that is what causes uh, like HLHS and similar single ventricle um, things. And like, you know, the fact that I had two doses of Zofran is now why my child, you know, is having to have surgery and things. And it was just like, what the heck? Um, and, you know, we went through all kinds of things and I even did tell, you know, 
our cardiology people at our appointment, you know, like I had Zofran and I was on Maxaran and, you know, these were things that I, I had because, you know, I was so sick. But then you also have to remember, even if those meds were the reason that Elliot has his condition, neither of us would have survived because I had um, hyperemesis with like both my pregnancies, like, uh, and he was way worse. So like, there is no way either of us would have survived without meds so i mean i'll take the heart defect over right and that and that's the thing like we have to weigh our pros and cons but at the same time a lot of our heart defects are formed within the eight first eight weeks of life and i mean if i'm being honest i think annabelle i knew as soon as i was pregnant when i got pregnant with her but jacob i wasn't actually I it wasn't even me that told me I was pregnant it was my it was Ned who told me I was pregnant and uh the only reason why he said I was pregnant was because I was drinking chocolate milk out of straight out of the container and he looks at me he go, one day and he goes you're either getting your period or you're pregnant and I argued with him I'm like no I'm not getting my period I'm not due for it to having my period and I mean I track my period I think like almost every other person who gets a period tracks it and lo and behold, I opened up my app and I was a week late with my period. And I'm like, oops, okay, yeah, we'll get a test. But, I mean, you don't know that you're pregnant usually that early. So even to blame yourself is part of the grieving process. But it is not the entire process and it's not your fault. Yeah, and then talking about blame and faults, um, too, talking, going back to, like, the gender disappointment thing um, is probably um, it, like, this piece and um, the, oh, what is it called? Basically, where you have uh, mood swings when you pump or breastfeed. Um, I had that with Elliot, um, and I kind of forgot about it because it was mainly when I pumped. Um, and obviously, you're hormonal regardless after birth and pumping in a hospital is just not a great setting regardless um but um you know I had really 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 been upset about not having a boy with Blair and then I was really really wanting a boy and we had even decided that we weren't going to find out the sex of the baby um this time you know we weren't going to find out that way when I had the baby it was going to be less likely to matter um versus me having the time to dwell on it from like our 20-week appointment so when we got the call saying that you know they couldn't see the heart correctly and there might be something wrong and we needed to go get more stuff done um the first thing I asked her was like what is the baby and it totally threw my doctor off guard because she knew exactly why we didn't want to know and she didn't want to tell me and I pushed her and pushed her and pushed her and when she told me it was a boy I knew that like we were doomed um like I I knew that it was going to be like there was something going to be wrong and it wasn't going to be just something small it was going to be like this big ordeal um because I had doomed our child to have this defect because I demanded a boy from the heavenly powers like whatever you want to you know what I mean but like I was like so determined to have a boy that I was going to have the boy at any cost basically and this was my cost 
yeah and i mean heck i blamed myself for annabelle and all because i drank a uh like a few sips of a mimosa because it came with a with it came with my our meal and it was only one of those tall skinny cup glasses and i think i had like maybe three sips altogether out of it and like that was what i kept going back to with annabelle and um but yeah gender disappointment is a big thing and you're not a bad person if you're disappointed in the gender i mean i think we're all wired to prefer one sex gender over another gender I think but I don't know I'm not a doctor but Chrissy I so desperately wanted I cried whenever I found out I was having a girl that because I wanted a boy and uh, then with Annabelle we found out we were having a girl and gender didn't matter and then with Jacob gender didn't matter with Jacob either the only thing that mattered with Jacob was that he was happy and healthy and his 20 week scan showed some dilation of kidneys. And so I was worried about that and um, I had to go back for additional scans. And thankfully, though, he's his kidneys are fine. But it, it's a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. And, um, Oh geez, <laughs> like gag. Um, it had something to do with that heglating toss. Um, what was it? Oh, that's what it was. Um, so, <laughs> speaking of the whole wanting happy and healthy children, um, huge, huge factor in a medical mom's. Um, mental health is hearing people all I there was a post actually just on one of my my mom groups about this about um about gender disappointment and talking about what you wanted and what you got for your birth order and one person only one person said they didn't care they just wanted happy and healthy children and my response was it not just this but my my response was that I wanted to start the conversation of okay what if they weren't what because it's not not something you ever think about until you're in that position and for somebody who has like a medically complex children child to not care because they want this child to be healthy is very different from a person who has healthy children just being like i don't care as long as they're healthy (laughs) there's a very different very very different tone to both of those um but just just to clarify that um but yeah and um yes i just that was the one thing that popped to mind because it is a huge pet peeve even just hearing you say it and i know like like i said it's a very different tone coming from another medical mom than it is coming from somebody who doesn't have a child with complex needs but it still grinds my gears i i i definitely know what you're saying but yeah that's when people when I put when everybody asked me because I got pregnant so close together with Annabelle and Jacob and Annabelle was is my heart child and Jacob's my heart healthy child and you know 
once I hit my 20 weeks, everybody was pounding me for what is the gender? Is the baby going to be okay? And I, I don't understand why so many people are fixated on what the gender of an unborn child is that they have nothing to do with it. Like, just let me enjoy my pregnancy and keep your comments to yourself because nine chances out of 10, they're just going to stress us out. Um, So then um, I guess like the, the biggest thing um, then is uh, just talking about that, like new moms and um, you know, the thousands of questions you have and the uncertainties you have, um, I found the 10 most common I thought it was 11. that people Google or ask. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's 10. I think it's 10 when you really break it down. I have broken them down into oh, really okay. small things. It's, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've overanalyzed things here. But um, basically the first thing is like, when will my kid get teeth? Um, and basically, yeah, like babies can be born with teeth, but they can get teeth, um, at any point. Uh, Elliot has one and a half teeth and he is almost 11 months old. Blair had no teeth until eight months and then she got eight Holy teeth. Holy cow. I can't imagine teething through eight teeth at once. Um, oh, she was a beautiful teether, beautiful teether. Elliot, on the other hand... Like that one half of a tooth that is still poking through, he screamed all day. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure we have more teeth coming in, but likewise, Jacob is eight months old and he has four teeth. Don't ask me about my other two girls because that was so long ago that I don't remember. And, and the fact is, is you're, once your kids get so old, you're not gonna care when their first tooth popped through. Nope. You're just worried about them brushing them every right. day. Um, and then the next thing was like milestones, um, lots of questions about milestones, but, um, the biggest things were like, when will my kids start, you know, understanding no, or start saying mama and dada, and when will they start walking or taking their first steps? And basically, um, I mean, me, you discussed this a little bit, um, language skills are, start developing somewhere between six and nine months. And then first steps is more of an 18 month milestone. Um, so just don't expect your kid to walk before. But that's not to months. say that your child won't be saying mama or dada by the time they're seven months old or pulling themselves up and cruising around on the furniture by the time they're eight months. But the fact is, is every child is different and every child hits those milestones at a different time. And it is okay if your child hasn't hit them yet and they're well above those milestones or well past those ages. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so if you, and, and too, if you have a child who has extra needs, you're going to want to take that into consideration and, um, you know, talk to your doctor about where your child is supposed to be. So here, um, they already set our cardiac kids, especially single ventricles, on a preemie schedule about a month behind. Um, and then, like, uh, I have been mentoring a couple of families um, who have children who were preemies and 
have complex uh, CHDs and had multiple surgeries and lots of inpatient time. And so they are, you know, close to Elliot's age, but are still like at a two to three month milestone spot. And that is totally okay because you have to take all of those things into consideration and, um, you know, trying to explain that to this poor mother that it is okay that your child isn't reaching these things yet. It's okay that they're not doing these things. Think about what you've been through. Like they will get there in their own time. Absolutely. I mean, and that's not to say that we don't stress. I mean, heck, Annabelle is too. And she's still not saying mama or dada yet. We have a very limited vocabulary, but these kids get their, they get their point across or they can get where they want to be or, you know, they make it work in their own unique ways. Yeah, we have lots of language skills. Well, not lots of language skills, but good language skills, but he's um, a little bit behind in, um, gross motor fine motor is fine gross motor like he's not crawling um definitely not cruising definitely like just just starting to pull the stand still doesn't even really roll around a lot of places like a lot of kids um like eight months this are like rolling everywhere and like moving around he just like he army crawls and butt scoots now but he really just started doing that um and then Blair was like walking. Oh yeah, and Chrissy was walking by the time she was six months old, and then Annabelle did a roll, sit up, roll some more to get to from point A to point B because she never stood until well after ten months old. And um, now Jacob, he's crawling and standing and trying to take his first steps at eight months. So milestones very so vastly from di- children and even siblings are they're so different even if there's nothing even if they're both heart healthy yeah um and then like when is my child's umbilical cord supposed to fall off and you know how do i take care of it and things like that basically my main yeah. thing would be um talk to your doctor and see what they follow um but don't stress um because even between my two so there is three years exactly three years exactly like i'm not joking they are may 11th and may 14th um three years exactly between my two and in that three years things completely flipped uh with blair i was told like you keep it dry don't touch it don't do anything with it um like don't even put the kid within six feet of water basically um you know wait until it falls off then do your thing um with Elliot it was like you know bathe them just make sure it's dry um you're gonna want to clean around it and like make sure you're, you're, you know you're doing a good clean sleep and it was just such a it's such a weird thing and things change so um con or they, things are constantly changing and um you're never going to keep up if you try to like stay up with whatever it is so just follow whatever your doctor tells you if you're unsure just 
um, either call your obstetrics unit or your OB or your midwife, whoever you're through. Um, and they'll be able to tell you kind of what they do and then just, just go with it. It, it's not as scary and, um, you know, particular. And I promise from previous experience that if you ask your doctor at their one week checkup, if their umbilical, umbilical cord is supposed to look like that, because, you know, it's been, my kids are eight years apart. Chrissy is eight. Jacob is eight months old. So I don't count Annabelle in the umbilical cord because I didn't have to deal with it since she was rushed to the NICU. They actually removed it for us and put in a central IV line. So I didn't have to deal with it. But eight years is a long time in between kids, in between umbilical cords. So at her first doctor's appointment with Jacob, I asked the nurse, I'm like, is his umbilical cord supposed to look like this? It looks like it's about ready to fall off and it's decaying and everything else. And she assured me that it was fine. Um, And then uh, the next thing was um, dressing baby appropriately and uh, like how many layers should I dress my kid in and what should they wear to bed and all of these other things. Um, Again, you're going to get to know your child. Um, There is lots of great little diagrams that talk about um, like your room temperature and um, where, like what, how many layers your child should wear to bed um, and talking about safe sleep and all those things. Um, But you do you, you know, your kids, my kids are hot blooded and they are constantly sweaty little furnaces. Even Elliot, who is supposed to be cold and all these other things like he is constantly like he is a, literally a human furnace. It is brutal. Um, and you cannot keep this kid bundled up like you think you should because he will literally just like drench the bed um, in sweat. So, I mean, you, you figured out and it's trial and error. Um, whatever works for you. There's no, not a rule book on how many layers your kid needs to wear to bed because your room temperature is likewise when they get to become toddlers though they're going to protest clothing and they won't want to wear it or they'll change their outfit about 50 million times so definitely that's on the outfit yes. the good old yeah, good old running around naked um then the next thing was waking a sleeping baby um should you wake a sleeping baby when do you wake a sleeping baby um, because you know the saying, don't wake a sleeping baby. Um, and my answer to that is BS. <laughs> um, if you feel like you should wake your child, wake your child. Um, and that's like just my general statement. Um, but for us, like uh, we were told, you don't need, like, don't wake the sleeping baby. Um, Blair was gaining weight. Um, she had some weird color into her skin but as somebody who is Portuguese with a genetic mutation um, my skin is yellow naturally Um, and so we thought it was just her skin color turned out she had jaundice Um, (laughs) her eyes never turned yellow like she did not have all the like telltale signs of jaundice but she had jaundice and 
she needed to be woken then after like a month of her having jaundice and us getting used to sleeping through the night because she slept through the night from the beginning because she was too tired to wake up um we had to start waking her up every two hours to feed her at night and throughout the day and then we could slowly wean up into the six hours um again but it was like ridiculous and to think that people are just um you know don't wake the sleeping baby um if you again like if you are concerned wake the baby up and um your baby should not be like um i did do a little looking up of this and so i think it's four hours up until like a month old or something or up until birth weight um they should not be sleeping more than four hours stretches um just for the sake of weight gain uh once they're at their birth weight and um they're gaining weight good uh you don't need to wake them unless otherwise specified uh yeah i just wanted to add that i was one to never wake a sleeping baby no if baby is sleeping i'm gonna sleep he'll wake when he's hungry but um you can also dream feed and basically what dream feeding is is getting if you know your child is gonna wake up at you know 12 o'clock every night go in at 11 30 and give him a bottle while he sleeps or while she sleeps and um, feed them that way. That way they stay sleeping. And then once their bottle is done, you can go to bed. But um, we did a lot of dream feeds with Annabelle because of her medication schedule. And it was just 10 times easier to do a dream feed and get her medications to her that way, rather than waking her completely up to give her her medications every four hours. Um, and that's that's a good point too and circumstances are for every single person are going to make a a huge difference and i totally recommend is like if you can dream feed it is great make it dream feed but but definitely um, follow what your doctor says and if you are unsure about waking your child or not versus not waking your child talk to your own doctor and see what their pediatrician recommends Um, and then so the next thing was poop and like what should my kids poop look like uh basically my my end thought there would be um as long as it's not uh depending on age again talk to your doctor but like uh as long as there's no coffee ground looking stuff as long as it's not red um you're usually not too much of a concern if your kid's poop is routinely white uh, or gray, and it'll be very obvious, um, then you should probably bring that up because it can be signs of, and I believe it's liver issues. Um, but other than that, poop um, in babies is all kinds of yellows and greens. And another issue that you have to be aware of too is constipation and children too so if you think your baby's constipated talk to your doctor and see what's safe to give your child um yep and then um uh something interesting that i've seen so apparently lots of people talk uh google about um like the twitching and REM sleep movement um and it did cover a lot of good information and you can um 
so moving and twitching in REM sleep is completely normal. Um, but if you are ever concerned, again, like there is no harm in reaching out to your doctor, your pediatrician, whoever it is that is covering your child's care and just, um, I recommend snapping a video of whatever it is. Or a picture if it pertains to poop. Um, yeah. Yeah. And showing it to whoever it is. Um, so like, I want to say like nine times out of 10, whatever twitching it is, is probably just REM movement. But if you are concerned or if the movements are uniform, there are, um, lots of different things that it can be. So for sure, like follow up, um, both my kids are very, very active in their REM sleep and I (laughs) spend a lot of nights, uh, watching their movements to make sure that they are not becoming, um, Uniform and Elliot is high risk for infantile spasms, which is a type of seizure that babies can have, um, which will look like just twitching. Um, so it, it's it never hurts to follow up if you are concerned. No, I don't think I, I don't think I have anything to add to that point. I haven't had. To- I, when I fall asleep, I fall asleep. Yeah, well, and when I fall asleep, I fall asleep unless the baby wakes up and then I'm up. But I don't uh, sit there and watch my children sleep, but maybe I'm, th- I'm thinking maybe I should. No, 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 don't, don't sit there. And it, it's because what happens with me is that I get an arm to the face. And then I wake up, and then I'm like, "What is ha- it? Th- this is this is the issue. Don't co sleep oh, with your I kids. Still, I could sleep with mine. I'm kidding. I'm totally they, kidding. But like, my kids are brutal. Mine aren't too bad. I'm working on getting Jacob into his <laughs> own crib. I'm working on getting Annabelle into her own, her own bed. But even my eight year old still co sleeps sometimes. So yeah, we're um. Elliot is in his own bed only because I was, again, Blair, Blair, like, will full on, like, be the ever-living poop out of you in her sleep. <laughs> so I was a little afraid of her, like, kicking her brother in the head. So he didn't co-sleep with us too much, especially when she was in the bed. Um, I guess we could talk about that since we're here talking about sleep. When should your kids sleep through the night and what does sleeping through the night mean? I That's definitely different from for every child. I mean, some of Chrissy slept through the night, the night at, you know, as soon as she came home from the hospital, Jacob is eight months old and still is only sleeping from eight to two in the morning before he's getting back up. And I'm pretty sure we've hit sleep regression, but that's besides the point, but it's definitely different for every child. And sleep regressions are a huge part of that. Just because your kids sleep through the night at one point does not mean that they're going to continue to sleep through the night. Um, Basically, the, like, scientific answer to this is six-month milestone to sleep through the night, but sleeping through the night is six hours. So doing one six-hour stretch at some point during the day, and that's the worst part. If your kids got their days and nights mixed out and they take a six-hour nap, that's their night's sleep. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, six months, six hours, um, is kind of the goal. 
but again, it, it is not like a milestone that is set in stone. It is just uh, um, something they'll look into if your kid isn't sleeping a longer stretch by six months. Um, but it's not like a, you need to have them sleeping six hours in their own bed. Da, 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 on a routine kind of thing it's just a, it, it's a guideline kind of idea um so don't stress if your kid doesn't sleep yeah because it's exactly that like blair slept through the night until eight months and then we hit a sleep regression and then she has not slept through the night since and she is almost four. <laughs> um Sterilizing? Did you want to talk oh. about sterilization? Of okay, so you're going to get a whole bunch of answers on sterilizing a bottle. Sterilize the bottle, boil the bottle, throw it in the dishwasher, whatever makes you comfortable. Unless your big child has brush, then yes, you should probably sterilize it after every use. Um, but there, there is no wrong answer. And I think this whole sterilization came from back in the 1900s and everything else when there wasn't clean, wa- clean accessible water and there wasn't as many hygiene standards and, you know, all the other things that have completely evolved over time. And now we have dishwashers that sterilize your stuff. So if you throw in all of your baby stuff into a dishwasher you're getting the same effect as putting it in a, ma- a specially made steril- bottle sterilizer. But that's my take on it. I never sterilized anything. And that's a good point. So, I, And that's totally something I haven't thought about either is like we are privileged to have access to um, decent water. Um, and, um, I mean, they pump it right full of weird stuff, especially in the summer so that you don't get sick. But I mean, that's the good side of like, it's water that, you know, is, uh, not going to give you bacteria. Um, (laughs) but anyway, yeah. So like, it's a privilege that we have it. So like, it depends on where you live too. If you live in an area where you're, you're under a boil water advisory, whatever you might want to boil your bottles post use um after you wash them um for sure because if you you know um have those kinds of issues where you live then it's going to be definitely much more of an issue for you than it is going to be um for somebody who has water that is safe to drink from the tap um and then the last thing kind of that is googled a lot is do you need to breastfeed do you need to pump and dump um when should i give my child a a pacifier um how often should i feed my kid do i need to give them vitamin d all of those breastfeeding questions um so basically do you need to breastfeed no do you need to pump and dump no if you can find your child you can feed your child um Nipple confusion, you make that call. It's still recommended, I believe, six weeks, but um, lots of NICUs now are saying that um, giving nipples to their infants are increasing their suck responses and helping them take bottles um, and breast. So um, there's lots of still mixed um, 
data out there. Um, how often should you feed if you're breastfeeding? I mean, um, on demand, if you feel like it, if you want to do a schedule, it's about every two hours. Um, but it totally depends on the kid. Uh, Elliot ate every half an hour. So, uh, and vitamin D is important, um, especially if you live in northern or very southern hemispheres. Um, or whatever it is, the, the, the poles. If you live closer to the poles, the equator, um, because the further you are away from the equator, the less vitamin D you're getting on a daily basis. And vitamin D is so important for so many different body processes, says the person who never gives her son with a heart defect his But in the morning. I, I um, do want to add that it does not make you a bad parent if you choose to formula feed. Your mental health as a parent is so yes. much more important than whether or not you have that internal battle of breastfeed, breast versus bottle. And quite frankly, fed is best. It doesn't matter if it's from the breast, from the bottle, or if it's from a feeding tube. Yep. And um, to add to that, because people like to argue with me on this, there is a nutrition side um on like on the part of mom with breastfeeding um yes your body will automatically pull from you to produce breast milk um but if you are not providing yourself with enough you are not going to produce so with Blair um I was not eating because I was so stressed um and I was not taking care of myself and she was getting milk and she was gaining weight okay but she hated, hated breastfeeding, absolutely hated it. And my milk supply was horrible. Um, and we just didn't. So she was almost exclusively formula fed. And I breastfed Elliot, the kid that they told me would never be able to breastfeed with absolute ease. We had zero issues. So um, mental health is a huge factor in your breastfeeding success as well so if you don't think that it's something that you can mentally handle that is okay because yeah I, I value my sleep way too much to um, want to even try to breastfeed so my kids all three of my kids were exclusively formula fed it is definitely it is definitely tiring um to to breastfeed at night if you're not planning on co-sleeping if you plan on co-sleeping then you can just latch him on a booby and fall back to sleep but uh i mean no you can't Shh. <laughs> uh yeah it's it's you know do as i say yeah, not yeah something like do, that right something like that um, is there anything else you wanted? To no, I think that's everything. I think we touched on. Yeah, I think we touched on everything. Everything. Yeah. Well, thank you for everyone who has listened. Um, we appreciate you guys joining us. And um, if there is anything um, that anyone would like to clarify or talk about or just get off the chest um you can find us at the patchwork half heart on facebook and on instagram 
Um, and we are more than willing to hear your stories and chat with you, just give you some reassurance or help you guide you where you um, can find the information that you need. Um, we 